It might be being a firstborn, which I am. I'm not sure what it is that exactly caused it, but I I was never comfortable um, acting as if I deserved things just because I showed up. Uh, it was it always felt really awkward to me when I would see another child uh, throw a tantrum when they couldn't have what they wanted just because they wanted it had more of a tendency to want to be independent and to uh, have things because uh, I actually deserved them instead of just because I wanted them and I showed up. It might have been a firstborn thing. I don't know. Maybe just my personality. I did find out as I became an adult, or tried to, uh, that it was harder than I thought it would be as I looked forward to being able to independently have what I hoped I would have. Being an adult turned out to be painful and sometimes dangerous. Whether that was something as simple as trying to soften a stick of margarine in a Pyrex dish on a stove in our first apartment, don't do that. Um, They explode and they're not made of safety glass. Maybe it's something as simple as that. Maybe it's something that is far more complex and far-reaching, like signing on to the loan documents for a small business that, in the long run, exploded our family's finances uh, for a number of years. That was painful as well. Uh, The Lord saw us through both of them. He's been gracious through both of them. And yet, being an adult has not necessarily been easy still learning how to do it, there are unhealthy ways of being a child, and there are unhealthy ways of being an adult, and one unhealthy way of doing both that can be held in common is what we see as entitlement. You've seen entitled children, and perhaps you've felt really uncomfortable with seeing them. Uh, Kids who think, "I, I deserve this because I showed up. I want this, and so I should have it, and I'll fight for it if I can't have it. And frankly, I shouldn't have to work for anything either. It's a childish kind of entitlement. There is also an adultish kind of entitlement that's more subtle and harder to see and maybe not even show up as entitlement. The idea that I deserve good things because I was smart enough And I worked hard enough to receive them. And I found as an adult, especially as I found that it's not as easy to to earn, as it were, good things as I thought it would be, I found myself scrambling to hold on to things and to preserve them and to make sure that the difficult results of my work actually stick around. It's an unhealthy kind of entitlement for... uh, a childish person, and there's an unhealthy kind for an adultish kind of person as well. The, the Bible's response to both of those kinds of is not mainly, you don't deserve it. That's true, in a sense, that we don't deserve these things just because of who we are, or even just because of our work. But that's not the main answer that the Bible gives us. Its its main answer is something that comes in the form of far better news 
something far more hopeful. It's really expressed by the psalmist in, in Old Testament language, in the language of his time in Psalm 73.1, surely God is good to Israel. The, the point is not you don't deserve it. The point really isn't about yourself or myself at all. The point is that God's good heart toward his people is always trustworthy. That's where our hope for the good that we long for is found, is in the heart of God. And so Nehemiah 12, I think, I hope with the Lord's help, is going to help us to replace putting our hope on the idea that I deserve good things because I showed up or because I worked hard. To replace the idea that I deserve good things with the reality that that the Lord is good and does good. There's so much more hope there. He does that good freely and affectionately. And he does it in significant part through our work. He does good for us through the adult work that we do. And yet our hope is not in our work. It's in him. It's in his heart. And living there with our hope in the trustworthy, good heart of our God, of our Father, helps us to be, really in the best way, childlike adults. Childlike adults. I think we're going to see an an expression of childlike adultness in Nehemiah 12. It's expressed in Nehemiah 12, 43, when we're told that as the people gather together to celebrate what's happened among them in Jerusalem, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The people needed to be prepared to rejoice in that way. To rejoice in a way that really could be broadcast to the nations around them. They needed to be prepared for that. They needed to be prepared to receive the good things that God had provided for them. Without the childish sense that I should have this just because I showed up. And without the adultish sense that I should have this because I worked so hard for it. They receive it ultimately from the good heart of their God. We see a biblical response to childish entitlement, a biblical cure, as it were, for childish entitlement in verses 1 through 26, where Israel once again rehearses the answer to the question, how did we even get here? How did we show up? And and we have another list here in Nehemiah, and every time there's a list in the Bible, there's at least one purpose for that list. And we can get that list sometimes from the content of the list and sometimes from the context where the list shows up exactly. This one shows up where the people of Israel have been rebuilding. And what's in the list is, first and foremost, a list of priests and of Levites. God had provided for his people mediators, people who could stand in between them and God and bring them 
acceptable into God's presence. They couldn't do that on their own. They needed someone to stand between them. And God had set apart a whole tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, and a selection of people within that tribe, the priests, to stand between them and God so that they could actually be in God's presence and not be destroyed. And the fact that the priests and the Levites are still here is a pretty astounding thing. Here, the people of Israel stand in a place of, of, of heritage, a place of receiving things that have come down to them from the past and that have come down through several streams of promises that God has given them. One of those streams is the stream of the priests and the Levites. God had provided them, and here in Nehemiah 12, there's a rehearsing, uh, a listing of generations of priests and Levites, these mediators who stand in the middle. You see generation 1 in verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all the names. The generations are actually summarized in verse 10 where, where the author lists Jeshua and Joachim and Eliashib. And Jeshua is generation 1 of these priests and he's a priest during the first generation of the people who come back amazingly from exile. And then his son is Jehoiakim in generation 2. And his son in generation 3 is Eliashib. And Eliashib is the priest during the time of Nehemiah. So as we read through Nehemiah, this is the, the present day priest. And it's worth stopping to ask the question, how in the world did we, if we're standing with Nehemiah, how did we manage to stand downstream of these promises? How, how is it possible that there are still priests, mediators assigned by God? How did this stream not dry up when God's people were sent off into exile? The fact that our nation was not destroyed, it's astounding. The fact that there are still priests whose names can be traced back to well before the exile, shows us that we, we don't deserve to be here just because we showed up. Somebody preserved this line of priests for us and preserved us to benefit from it. And here we are. There's a line of priests. The other stream that becomes part of this river that the people stand in, this river of blessing, of heritage, is the stream, is the king stream. The stream that really is represented by David. God had promised to David that he would build him a house and that his sons would sit on his throne. And you see that promise in uh, 1 Samuel 7. And God had provided through the house of David, down through the years, what's described in Psalm 7872, we're, we're told, starting in verse 70, rather, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. We see that guidance of David in setting up the, the worship of Israel especially. 
we see that emphasized here that the people stand many generations downstream of the shepherding, the skillful shepherding that David had done, and they're still receiving benefits from it. We see that in verse 24, where there are chiefs of the Levites during the time of Nehemiah. Amazing they're still here. And they're appointed with their brothers to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. And then David is referred to again uh, later in the passage in verses 36 and 37 and verses 45 and 46. We're still heirs to the leadership that God graciously provided through David. <clears throat> how in the world, we could ask this question, if we're standing with Nehemiah and his people, how in the world did we end up standing downstream of these promises, and how did it not dry up? Jeremiah actually tells us. Jeremiah stood at that place right before everything completely uh, fell apart. Jeremiah is, is sometimes called the weeping prophet, and with good reason. Jeremiah served right before the exile happened, right before the time when the people were taken away from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was destroyed because of their disobedience. And he warned them that it would happen if they were unfaithful to God. And his warnings came true. And Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were carried off and God's word was proven trustworthy. And it wasn't the only word that God gave through Jeremiah. He gave other words of promise that would outlive the discipline. Promise that would outlive the destruction. Here's one of the promises in Jeremiah 33.20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. I'm going to preserve these streams for my people. I'm going to provide leadership for my people. I'm going to provide a, a, a mediator for my people. And here they are, and it's still preserved even after all of the destruction. So they had a very good answer to a question that will be asked many years later by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.7. It's a very relevant question for all of us every day. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? How did you end up here to receive these blessings? Did you, did you receive it because you earned it, just because you showed up? Did you get it on your own? And, and the intended answer to that question is always, I have nothing that I did not receive that was not in some way provided for me by someone else. Now, the people of Israel in Nehemiah's time are in a really good place to receive the good things that God has given them, uh, not with a sense of childish entitlement. I should have this just because I showed up. They're in a good place to see that it's been preserved for them in a way that they could never have managed because it started generations before them. 
And they showed up in a generation that they didn't choose to be part of. It was part of God's gift to them. <clears throat> Against all human odds, God has kept his promise. So the people respond to his goodness through those who are assigned, verse 24, to praise and give thanks. They, they begin to prepare to do that in, in a real structured way, in a, in a way that brings them all together, starting in verse 27, starting with a dedication of the wall. And it's in this second part of the passage, in verses 27 through 43, that we see, that we see our response to adultish entitlement. This idea that I should have good things because I earned them, because I'm smart enough and worked hard enough. There's a much better reason, a much more hopeful reason that we have good things when we do have them. As they prepare to praise and give thanks publicly, the people see the need for themselves and for the wall to be purified. That's an interesting thing to do with a wall, isn't it? Why does a wall need to be purified? As a wall doesn't need to be purified in order to keep enemies out. It just needs to be there and be strong enough. That's what a wall does, and that's what it's there for. It's, it's their wall. They built it with their hands, and you don't have to purify it in order for it to get in the way of people who want to get in and destroy your city. You just have to build it. But the people have been through enough, enough provision in desperate times from the Lord to know that there's more going on than just the protection that they want from the wall. They, they don't own anything on their own because they don't own themselves. They belong to God. They've been set apart to God as his precious possession. He, they belong to him and he loves them. And they want to acknowledge that. They want to acknowledge everything we have belongs to you because we belong to you and we're not just resigned to that. We're not just willing to say, that's right, that's true, nothing I have is mine. They're happy about it. And so they prepare to rejoice by purifying the wall, perhaps with water, perhaps with a sprinkling ritual themselves as well, in order not only to acknowledge, but to celebrate the fact we are your precious possession. And so is everything in our hands. They're preparing we see in verse 27, to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing. <clears throat> Nehemiah then arranges, this is where Brian, if you have the, if you have the graphic available, um, we'll, we'll use this so that you can sort of get a, a picture of what it would have looked like for Nehemiah to arrange two great sort of parades of people, two processions. We're actually told that he, he arranges the singing into two great choirs. That's what we're told in verse 31. And these two different choirs take different routes actually along the top of the wall so that they can gather together for this celebration that they're going to have. We, we saw this, this picture of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day um, several weeks ago. It's a picture of, of how it was arranged. kind of looks like a, a house key. And as Nehemiah arranges these two different choirs made up, it appears, of 
priests and Levites, professional singers in some cases, as well as musicians, he has one of them start toward the, uh, toward the southwest side of this wall. So it's sort of toward the, the end of the key uh, on your right side, if you look at it that way. And they start down toward the end of that key, and they start walking south, uh, somewhere around the, what's called the valley gate. And then they, they curve around the bottom of that key, and then they head back up north to the north part of the city where the temple is. The route that this first group takes, they're followed by Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the route that they take looks similar to the route that Nehemiah took in chapter 2 when he went out to survey the city. But their path through that route is, is remarkably different. If, if, you, if you were here for the Nehemiah 2 part of this, you saw that Nehemiah really had to, had to pick his way through the trash and rubble and destruction in order to make his way around the south part of the city, in order to see what was going on. It was not an easy trip around the city. And now the people take a trip around the city through a highway, through a clear path. Uh, in, in, in the middle of the day and not at night, they don't do it uh, in, in hiding, kind of. They do it publicly. They do it with instruments. They, they do it with seven priests with trumpets, we're told in verse 34, and with other people with musical instruments. It's a very public thing. And they do it on the top of the wall. We'll come back to that. Nehemiah follows the second choir. The second choir goes up the, west, the, the western wall. Instead of going back down around the bottom of this house key, they go up the, the right side of the house key so that they can meet this other choir up in the temple. They, go, they both go up on the wall and they come down from the wall into the temple to celebrate together. <clears throat> the progress that they've made and their ability to experience that progress really is impressive. They built this wall in 52 days. They really have, have a, a, a unique opportunity to do what Psalm 48 encourages people in Jerusalem to do. <clears throat> Verse 12, walk about Zion, that's Jerusalem. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Look around, look at this place. And, and they have an opportunity to do that now and, and to see it as, as, as their city, as the city that they had their hands in building. And, and it's exciting. And it's impressive that this has actually happened. And they have the opportunity to go around Zion from the wall. If you're there, if you're walking along this wall, and you see that it's built, and you remember chapter 4, what do you feel like doing? this point. It's been a while since chapter 4. Let's turn back to it for just a minute and remember what would have been very natural for the people of God who were on the wall to remember. They were opposed. They were opposed violently. Told in chapter 4 starting in verse 1, now when Sanballat, that name sounds like a bad guy, there's good reason for it. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry 
and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone walls. That's pretty juvenile. But what do you do about it when you're still trying to build the wall and you don't know for sure if it's all going to work and you don't yet have a way to respond to Sanballat and his toady, Tobiah? And now you have a way to respond. Now what happens if a fox jumps up on the wall? Well, now it's not a fox on the wall. Now it's two great choirs on the wall. We are in a great place to prove our enemies terribly wrong and to prove ourselves beautifully right. That's a good feeling, isn't it? When somebody has told you you can't do it and then you do it, and it feels great. And, and guess who doesn't show up in chapter 12 at all, even in what the people say and do? The enemies don't. They are now experiencing their success, experiencing good things, not with taunts of superiority over others, but with songs of praise. Their, their, their attention is not directed toward those who had said you can't do it at all. It's directed toward the one who made it possible for them to do it. And that is an infinitely more hopeful place to be. <clears throat> they, they worked hard for this. They sacrificed. They risked. They've proven their opponents wrong. And still, the question remains, what do you have that you did not receive? And they answer it correctly. Not by sending to their enemies to tell them, hey, watch us jump on our wall and see what happens. They don't worry about their enemies at all. They direct their attention to God. And again, not by saying, what can we do to repay you? They direct their attention to God with confident thanksgiving. He appointed two great choirs, verse 31, that gave thanks. And so, verse 40, both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. Verse 42, and the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. So when they, when they answer the question, what do you have that you did not receive? They don't do it by hanging their heads and saying, nothing, I don't, I don't have anything that I didn't receive. That's not the point at all. The point is not to make them feel bad about themselves. The point is to put their confidence where confidence can really be found. Because there's another question. When, when, when that question is asked in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? There's, there's another question in that context when Paul's writing to the Corinthians that's also answered. And that's the question, what have you received? And the answer is pretty amazing. <clears throat> so, Paul says, this is 1 Corinthians 3, 
21. So let no one boast in men. Okay, we agree with that. Why? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Our work produced something good because God is good, because our God is good, because our God is good to us, because his heart loves to give us good things. It knows the best order in which to give them to us. It knows when to assign hard things and when to assign pleasant things. So we get them in the right order. And so that our confidence doesn't get placed in the fact that we showed up or we worked hard enough, but that our confidence is placed in the unchanging good heart of God toward us. So that it gets expressed with singing and not with a sense of superiority. <clears throat> they thank the Lord for what he's done. There's a couple different ways of thanking someone, aren't there? Saying thank you and being thankful are different from each other. Saying thank you, in a sense, is sort of an adult thing to do. It's a polite thing to do. It's something that we try to teach our kids to do, to say, say thank you when somebody gives you something good. Sometimes saying thank you is the, really the only thing that we're left with. We're left in a place where, where, where somebody gives us something and, and sort of the only thing that we can do is to say thank you because maybe they've given us something that actually we're just not all that happy to receive. We appreciate the heart uh, and, and we know that it's right to say thank you, and it is. But in that case, saying thank you is kind of more gracious than it is grateful. And, and, and it's good. It's good to do that. But what it doesn't have in it is the thing that the thanksgiving has here in Nehemiah 12, and that is joy. The difference between saying thank you and being thankful is joy. And it's not only joy in the good things that we've received. I, I expect, I bet, that the greatest joy that you've received in, in a gift that's been given to you has not mainly been because the thing you received was so cool. I hope it was. You've probably received some cool things. But I bet that the greatest joy in what you received was the thoughtfulness of the person who gave it to you. A person that knew you, that knew that this would be so well suited to who you are now. And, and what would bring you some kind of happiness now, it's the heart of the giver and the relationship with the heart of the giver that gives us the greatest joy. Because if it's only the thing, the thing will wear out and go away. But the heart of the giver is something that sticks around. And in the case of God, it's something that sticks around forever. <clears throat> gratefulness, real gratefulness, is marked by joy. Joy that comes partly from knowing, I couldn't have done better for myself. I don't have anything that I haven't received. And I've received these things from someone whose heart I can trust. 
And so I have joy not only for what God has done, not only for what I have now, but joy in the relationship that I have with him that makes it so that if this wall does break down someday, I still have him. I still know him. He still loves me. And so in verse 43, we have joy that overflows from established trust in the heart of God. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's actually the point of walking about Zion, walking about Jerusalem, considering her ramparts, looking at her towers. I didn't read the end of the psalm. <clears throat> Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Why? That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever, not the city, but the God who gave it to us. He will guide us forever. I want us to have that kind of joy, the kind that comes from not only being happy that God has provided good things for us, even in desperate moments, but the kind that can spread beyond us, that can be heard in the words of this passage, beyond Jerusalem, far away. Our thanksgiving to match the bigger story that we're part of. That here we stand downstream of the promises of God. We don't deserve to stand there. God has allowed us to be a part of that, to have our hands on it, and allowed our work to be a part of this. And at the same time, in the best way, we have nothing that we have not received. Entitlement promises joy. But it never delivers. Never delivers because it, entitlement can't guarantee anything. It can tell you, you deserve this. But it can't guarantee that you'll get it. Knowing that God did this from a heart that loves to do good for his people really changes our outlook, not only on the past, not only on the present, but on the future. And it's the only thing that can only trusting in the unchanging heart of God that can do it. And we're going to need that, and the people of God are going to need that as well. They're going to need something for the future, something that does not depend on them, because the book of Nehemiah doesn't end in chapter 12. This would be a very happy ending, wouldn't it? Where the people walk around the wall, and they have this huge celebration, and all the fireworks go off, and then the credits roll. And that's not what happens in Nehemiah. That's not what happens next. We return for one more chapter to the enemy that's not the enemy outside. We find out that there's still more work to do and nothing but confidence in the steadfast covenant love of God will be enough for them to continue the work as it shows up again in Nehemiah 13. We're going to need that as well. Cracks are going to appear in the most important parts of the work here in Nehemiah. We're going to experience that also. And we're going to need to stand ready with an attitude of confident dependence that the God who provided for us is the God who will provide for us. The kind of 
dependence that allows us to move forward with humble confidence. So the people prepare to do that. They once again put their heads down to work in verses 44 through 47. And they set up the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, all the things that they agreed to do. And they say, we're going to move forward with doing this. We're going to move forward as receivers of the blessings that God has given us. And they're going to need that. They're going to need to live under God's kingdom as childlike adults, ready to do the work and ready to not simply trust in their own work. When it's painful to do the work, when it's hard to do the work, my experience has been that I cling to the results of my work. And there's no, there's no place in that attitude for me for childlikeness. It's so hard to be an adult that there's no place for me to be a child. So long as I'm only trusting in my work being adequate. My work being enough. I was really hit with that last year, uh, last summer. As through some hard circumstances, I found myself sitting, uh, sitting, sitting in a van, sort of before the Lord, realizing, you know what, this whole thing about being an adult and carrying the responsibilities of being an adult has been a pretty hard thing. It, it's, I've, I've carried that weight awkwardly, and I have, I've, I've totally missed the opportunity because I have been working so hard not to be childish, I've missed the opportunity to be childlike in the best ways. And so I just talked to the Lord about this and, and wrote down some of what I prayed. Father, please teach me how to be a childlike adult. Free in my knowledge that you love me as my father. Free in my enjoyment of the good things you provide free in affection to those around me, and fueled by that freedom, willing to use my adult capacities to bring good into the lives of others. I'm still learning baby steps into being a childlike adult, and it's still worth learning. These are good things to learn, learning to trust the heart of my father in such a way that I'm willing to work and willing to not cling to the results of my own work, but to trust him. One of the ways that we do that is by, in our own way, in our present day, going about Jerusalem, looking around and seeing how, maybe through uh, things the Lord has allowed us to touch, maybe through things he's just done for us, looking around and saying, how has the Lord provided for us in impossible ways? How in moments of desperation has the Lord come and done good things for us that we now have good reason to celebrate? Sometimes we do that in the form of just an overflow of that was absolutely amazing to me. And sometimes we do it in a little bit more structured ways. And both of those are good, right? To just, to just overflow with, wow, what is it that the Lord just did? Sometimes with tears. And other times to say, let's do this on purpose together. 
Uh, we've done that before quite a few times at Grace through a testimony service. And we haven't done one of those for a while. I think it's time to do one of those again. For us, in a sense, to go about Jerusalem and say, what is it that the Lord has done here? Especially over the last four, five, six months, however long it's been. feels like a year. Where has the Lord met you in times that felt impossible? In times of desperation? In times where it was really clear to you, I cannot get this done on my own. I want to encourage you to, to think back through that. Maybe you have a journal. Maybe you have emails or texts that you've sent. Maybe, maybe you could go back over the last few months of ways that you've recorded your thoughts or your experiences and say, when has that, when has that happened? Because here's what happens for me. Um, I, I, I face a, a, a desperate situation. If I'm in the right frame of mind, I pray about it. Inevitably, the Lord provides... And I experience grateful relief for about a half hour. And then I move on to the next crisis. It's worth taking at least an hour to stop and say, let's enjoy the good things that God has done for us, perhaps in those desperate moments. I want to encourage you to do that. And I want to encourage you to encourage us with those things. I know some stories we can't share with everyone. Some stories we can. So September 7th. Uh, this is after we finish Nehemiah. Uh, we want to do our own sort of walking around the wall and standing in the temple uh, in our own way and saying, what has the Lord done? And celebrating that together. Would you think about how you can share that with the Lord's people? Um, we'll talk about the details of how to do that because with things being streamed, uh, the testimony services will have to work a little bit differently. One option for you, if you, if you prefer to do this, it's just to record a video. Do it on your phone, on your computer, whatever. Send us a copy of the video. If you'd rather do that than stand up in front of people, I know some people would prefer that, then do that. Record a 30-second, one-minute video of, of your story, of how the Lord has provided for you. Send that to us, and we will work to, to, to work that in to our time together of celebrating, rejoicing in what God has done for us. Not because we deserve it, not because we just showed up, but because we have a great high priest, someone who, uh, better than the Levites, better than David, has earned our place by living a perfect life for us, by dying for us, and that is Christ himself. Father, would you teach us in the best way to be childlike adults? In some mysterious way, you've called us to reign with you. Uh, we, we're, we're tugged either to just want good things because we're here or to, to reign on our own, to, to rule ourselves. You've called us to something so much better, to be your people, to work with you, and to trust you for all the good that we long for. So would you teach us to do that? Remind us of your good heart. Do this by your spirit in us, in Jesus' name.